about Mark chapter 1, the immediacy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's what we're going to deal with today, and we're coming back to studying a, a book of, of Scripture. I really agonized quite a bit about this. I think I've mentioned it uh, weeks previous that uh, this is something that I believe the Lord would have me to do. Of course, I've been doing it for 36 years, uh, teaching the scriptures chapter by chapter, verse by verse. But because of uh, the pandemic, because of uh, what we had to endure with most of you not able to come to church for a while, and then of course once we started opening, it, it changed a lot of things. And I think that, uh, again, through much prayer and, and agony, we realized that it was important to focus your attention upon the Word of God as it pertained specifically to what was going on in the world and what was going on especially in our own backyard. But uh, <clears throat> we are really called upon by the Lord to present the gospel of Jesus Christ to this lost and dying world as we were doing it before the lockdown or we should have been doing it before the lockdown. One of the things that I said yesterday in my message or well yeah yesterday morning had to do with and some of the other speakers alluded to this was that the body of Christ has, has, has been truly awakened since all of this took place to take us out of a complacency that we had into a contending for the faith. <clears throat> and that complacency, uh, there's just no room for it anymore. There are too many critical things that are happening in the world and, the, and to the neighbors and, and the people around us and, and family members and all. But they need to see the gospel of Jesus Christ lived out in our lives. And the more that I would hear this in, in, in listening to other speakers or uh, just in studying the scriptures, the Lord placed this burden on my heart to say, we need to be in the gospels. Because the more that we know about Jesus and the more we know Jesus and the more we become even more intimately in love with Jesus. We will be a light to those that are in darkness. As we once were. And somebody shined that light on us to bring us to Jesus. I chose the Gospel of Mark. Well, certainly the Lord did, but it was impressed upon my heart that it would be marked because of its shortness. It's the shortest gospel. You might say, well, why is that important? Well, because the Lord can come at any moment. It's to give us the understanding that uh, we, need, we live in a very immediate time. So if we're going to deal with the gospel, let's deal with one that just says, hey, let's get into it. Let's get going. The gospel of Mark is a gospel of action goes from one scene to another. I mean, boom, 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 boom. You know, it doesn't give us a... And this is kind of how we're going we're gonna to be looking at this particular gospel today. And that's why I, 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 I titled this The Immediacy of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. But I'll explain that as we go. And so, may God prepare us now to receive his word. The Gospel of Mark begins this way. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John did baptize in the wilderness 
and preach the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem and were all baptized of him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and with a girdle of a skin about his loins. And he did eat locusts and wild honey and preached, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. And straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens open and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And immediately the spirit driveth him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beasts. And the angels ministered unto him. Boom, 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 boom. You can go back and look at a couple of other gospels and you realize in the time that Mark said what he said in the first 13 verses, it would take about three or four chapters of the other, of the other gospels immediacy, the importance of hearing the gospel, knowing that at any time Jesus can come. As we begin this new series of studies in the gospel of Mark, it may, it may be wise to ask ourselves these questions. What will this gospel make of us? What will this gospel make of us? Secondly, what will it do in influencing our lives for the sake of Christ and his kingdom? And thirdly, how will our walk be affected by its truths? Think about those questions for just a moment. What will this gospel make of us? This isn't a time for us to consider that we're just get, kind of getting together and we've got to do something between now and, <laughs> and 1130. Spend a little bit of time, we can hear some nice stuff about Jesus and, and whatnot. No, this is a time to understand the word of God as it is supposed to be understood by believers in Jesus Christ. And that is, this is the word of life. This is the word of God's mercies. This is the word of God's grace. This is the word of life, of true eternal life. It's a word of necessity. It is a word of hope. It is a word of honesty. It is a word of truth. And it is the word, the word of truth because it is the word of Jesus. And it is the word of Jesus. And it is a word about Jesus. And it is a word that keeps us focused on the one who loved us so much that he died for us. What will this gospel make of us? What will it do in influencing our lives? This is going to be more than just a cursive reading, or a cursory reading, I should say. <clears throat> How will our walk be affected by its truth? I pray that we think about these things, that it matters as much going out the door and into the new week. As anything of great importance to us as a new week begins. So these are simple yet meaningful questions and it is my prayer that the Holy Spirit will give us light upon this gospel to bring us to fullness in the knowledge of Christ 
and in his ways. The main theme and purpose of Mark's gospel, if we could find one verse, is, is Mark 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Now some of your translations may say, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. But it is that understanding that the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto. Now these are the words of Jesus about himself. And he's using a term that identifies himself with us, the Son of Man. But it is altogether a statement of his deity as well. I'll talk a little bit more about that when we begin to compare the phrases the Son of Man and the Son of God. So we see then Jesus as the Son of Man, servant and Savior. This is the focus of the Gospel of, of Mark. That Jesus is a servant. And much of what we see going from one thing to the next is the action of Jesus. You know, we sometimes hear about things that are sold in stores for kids, you know, action figures. There's no greater action figure than Jesus, especially in the Gospel of Mark. Because he goes from one action to the next. So Mark is taking a different approach from Matthew's Gospel, which focused on Christ, the Messianic perspective as king, or Christ from the Messianic perspective as king. In Mark's Gospel, Jesus is on the go, as I mentioned, actively doing, actively going on and doing things. More miracles, by the way. More miracles are recorded in this gospel than in, than in the other three, even though it is the shortest of the three. And an important word that is used throughout to help maintain the flow of the narrative is in the King James, the word straightway. We saw it one time in our reading of the first 13 verses. The word straightway. Now that's a good English word, a good British word, if you will. But in most other translations, the word that is used is the word immediately. And the word immediately will, will be found in the King James as well. But this term, straightway and immediately, are, it is used 42 times in Mark's gospel. More than any other book in the New Testament. Immediately. And this is significant in light of the, of the title of today's message the intimacy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or, or I should say the immediacy. Immediacy, the word immediacy, according to Webster's New World Dictionary, is defined as the quality or state of being immediate. The quality or state of being immediate. Now, let's take the word immediate. The simple definition for that word immediate is having nothing come between with no intermediary not separated in space or in time, acting or happening at once, instant of the present. The point of all of this is to say that on the outside, this gospel moves in rapid succession through the active ministry of Jesus, displaying his power through his servanthood. Now this thought is to be applied to the immediacy and need of the present hour. Today, for the gospel of Jesus Christ to be proclaimed while his return is drawing very, very near. And as I mentioned to you, what a, there's no greater gospel than for us to study today because the Lord could come at any moment. But at least we are focused on what? We are focused on the good news, the good news of Jesus Christ, because that is what the word gospel means. The word gospel comes from a Greek word, evangelion, which means good news, simply good news. It was a word, actually, that was used uh, for Roman leaders and stuff. Uh, we'll get into the word a little bit more later, but it was used to have someone that would go out and just proclaim that the king or the Caesar or one of his family members was coming and 
And so, good news, guess who's here? Of course, all the oppressed people go, yeah, that's really good news. But when it is said of Jesus, it was truly good news. So what will this gospel make of us as we live in what is now today called a post-Christian era? When Christianity is no longer being treated with impartiality or even indifference, but instead it is being treated with violent opposition. What can be said of the times in which we have been placed to declare the good news of Jesus Christ to a lost and to a perishing world? This gospel, considered to be the oldest of the four gospels, written by Mark and based on the eyewitness accounts of the apostle Peter, is the gospel of action. It is the gospel of power. It is the gospel of miracles. And it is the gospel of service. And I pray that it moves us to immediate participation and willing service for his kingdom. So where do we begin? Why not at the beginning? Because that's what Mark says. He says the beginning of the gospel. Of Jesus Christ the Son of God let me just say very quickly here that there is an order as how Mark mentions Jesus name he says Jesus the Messiah Jesus the Messiah Son of God He mentions Jesus not to say this is the beginning or the beginning of the gospel of the Messiah, Jesus. There are times when we read in scripture that, for example, the apostle Paul will say Christ Jesus, our Lord, rather than Jesus Christ, our Lord. So the beginning of a phrase of a name of someone is always important in the Greek language and even in the Hebrew language. So it's important that he starts with Jesus. Why? So that we can see that he is going to talk about Jesus in what Jesus has come to do for us. The beginning of the good news of Yeshua, whose name means God is salvation. He came to bring us salvation. And he does so in service to us and in service to his Father. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So this gospel is not so much the one that Jesus preached, but the one that he was. He is the good news, Evangelion. And his beginning, according to Mark, is found in his first public appearance and entrance into the work of his ministry. Matthew and Luke, well, they begin in Bethlehem. John, John begins his gospel from before the foundation of the world in the region of eternity. As we've read in John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Each gospel has a reason for its beginning. But where does it begin for us? Where does the gospel begin for you and for me? Has it had its beginning in your souls? Has it had its beginning in us? Someone once said, every time Christ is born in a man's heart, the gospel has a new beginning. Every time Christ is born in a man's heart, the gospel has a new beginning. So unless it has its beginning here, the other beginnings will be of no effect. So getting back then to verse 1, Mark says two things about the beginning of the gospel or the good news. The gospel concerns, and again, Jesus Christ or Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. But I want you to note Mark's exact words. He says the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not 
the gospel of Mark, but the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is indeed the subject of the gospel, and he is ultimately the author of the gospel. By him and through him, the gospel is created and it is written. We, of course, know that that would make it an inspiration of God. It would be God-breathed. And so he brings the good news of God to man. He embodies and he proclaims the good news about God to man. So those are very important words to understand here. It is that Jesus brings the good news of God to man because he is the good news and he embodies and he proclaims the good news about God to man. If you've seen me, Jesus said to his disciples, you've seen the Father. He embodies the Godhead. And then Mark uses the term Son of God, and his use of the term Son of God reveals that the deity of Jesus Christ was of prime importance to him as much as it was to the Apostle John, as we've already seen in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's no doubt of his deity. And Mark would not want any doubts about his deity either. The Son of God, by the way, the Son of God, makes it clear that he is God. Now some would argue that point. But let's look at what the scripture says. Let's look at John 1.34 where, where John the Baptist would, would uh, say, And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. Still at that point, we would just say, well, he's the son of God. Well, aren't we all sons of God? But then listen to the words of Jesus himself in John chapter 10, verses 30 to 33. When he says to many of his detractors, he said, I and my father are one. So what did they do? The Jews took up stones again to stone him. For saying one thing, I and my father are one. And Jesus answered them and he said, Many good works have I showed you from my father, for which of those works do you stone me? The, the Jews answered him saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy. And because that thou being a man, makest thyself God. So there right then we find the definition then of what the Son of God was to the Jewish people. He was in fact saying he was God. For he was indeed the Son of God. And this is not foreign to the, to the Hebrew scriptures. The Messiah was going to come from God and in fact was God. We will see that more as we get into our study of the gospel. So as we've said, we, we're moving in, in quick succession in, in this Gospel of Mark, and we come now to the person mentioned as the Baptist, or the baptizer, and he is the forerunner. And immediately we get this in verse 2, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea, and they, went, and they of Jerusalem, and and were all baptized of him in the river Jordan. That means everyone who went out there and heard him preach repentance were baptized in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. 
repenting of their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and a girdle of a skin about his loins, and he did eat locusts and wild honey. That's quite an interesting description given to us here about John. You know, you would think that he was, if for those of you who have any time put into this world, back going back into the 60s and 70s and remembering hippies, and hippies were very unique in the way that they dressed because they were the first ones to actually come out and say, you know, we need to kind of get natural here, you know, natural, natural leathers and natural this and natural that, and earth shoes and all kinds of other things, you know, while looking really weird sometimes smelling really weird. Oh, and then, he, and then, of course, they were very organic even back then. You know, organic is kind of a big thing nowadays again as well. Well, John was pretty organic. He ate locusts and wild honey. But the real description here, we don't want to fail to miss that, is that they were, the, the people were to to look for someone, someone in the likeness of the prophet Elijah, who, by the way, is described like this back in the accounts of the kings. So there is John looking like Elijah, the prophet. And he preached, it says, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me, the latch of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. A statement of great humility. A statement of one that says, you know, I, I'm not even worthy. You know, servants would unlatch the, the, the shoes of, of their masters. But here was a master who was not only a master, but was a powerful master and a, uh, because of who he was. And this is what John is pointing out he was more than just a human master. This is Messiah. And it humbled John. Why are there a lot of people that are not humbled by the person and work of Jesus Christ today? Preachers who find themselves to be more important than even Christ himself. They say they preach Christ. But more to them is the importance of their looks and their appearances and what they own and what they have and what they fly and where they live and what they do with all the millions that they've squeezed out of their people. No humility whatsoever. John was humble. I'm not even worthy to stoop down and loose his, his sandals. I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. This John, whom we know as the baptizer, we call him John the Baptist, good name. But he is the fulfillment of prophecy. As the one who was to prepare the way for the Messiah of Israel, he would be the one that is mentioned in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I will send my messenger. This is what Mark quotes. I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Messiah is coming. John was the forerunner. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. When you go to Israel, you realize that when you go to places near the Jordan River, down toward the south, you are in a lot of desert landscaping. It is really desert down there. And this is where John is reported to have have baptized, fulfilling the scriptures. Roads weren't always fit to travel on, and so when royalty were to travel, a messenger was to go ahead and to prepare the way, making things ready for the king's coming. 
John was, was not only the, the one God used to prepare the way, but he was also the most immediate. You know, the Jewish nation with its hope for a redeemer, the Greek nation and its language, the Roman nation and its laws and unifying of peoples, all of this prepared the way for Jesus. All of that got everything ready for the coming of Jesus. When he came, where he came. He came at the very most appropriate time in all of history. Not a day late, nor a day too soon. But most importantly, the Hebrew scriptures were a record of God preparing the way. God prepared the way from Genesis with the very first promise of the seed of the woman. In Genesis 3.15, I'll read it in a moment. To Malachi's and Isaiah's announcements that we just read. But even at the very fall of man, because then that's when the necessity arose for a Messiah. That God immediately says to the enemy, notice he says it to the serpent, and I will put enmity or hostility between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. A very unique statement. The enemy certainly has a seed, and it is in all who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In a sense. But to say her seed, that is unique. Why? Because if we know our biology and physiology, women have eggs. The man has the seed. The seed would then have to come from God himself. Emphasizing that her seed, by the way, it's singular. Her seed is speaking of Messiah. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. A picture of the cross. Those who follow John would eventually follow Jesus. Those who follow John would follow Jesus because his message would be to the same generation to which Jesus would preach. John was to be Christ's forerunner by preaching a baptism of repentance because sin was the theme. Repentance was the call. And by this preaching, John prepared the way by plowing through the crusty, hard hearts of men's traditions and self-righteousness and making the heart's ground soft to receive the good seed of the kingdom. And by creating a, a genuine sorrow for sin and an eager expectation for the Messiah, when Jesus appeared, the disciples were actually ready to leave all and to follow him. And as great as the preparation by John was, it was still an imperfect work. It was still an imperfect work because his call to repentance did not satisfy the craving of the soul. But he pointed to another. John did not point to himself. John pointed to another. John did what only the best of men can do. He pointed to Jesus. He pointed to Jesus Christ. In effect, he pointed to his own cousin. John was born to a man named Zecharias who served at the temple. And his wife, Elizabeth, who was the cousin of Mary, the young maiden girl, Zechariah, in his service to the Lord, was visited by an angel and was told, your son is going to prepare the way 
for the Messiah. John would be born about six months before Jesus was born into this world. We know that John from the other Gospels went off into the wilderness to make a Nazarite vow. Much of what we read about his clothing and all kind of indicate that. Some have believed that John himself went into a particular sect of Judaism called the Essenes, who, even though they were known to be throughout most of Israel, concentrated themselves in an area called Qumran, over by the Dead Sea, down in the very southern parts of the desert of, of, uh, of Israel. There they put together a library that would be eventually found in 1947 as the Dead Sea Scrolls, very nearby where they were. And the excavations have proven that. It's possible that John actually spent time there. Much of what they did was, was in fact, uh, very simple in their dress in their devotion to the word of God. They baptized themselves every day. In other words, they immersed themselves in the mikvahs, the many mikvahs that you find when you go to Qumran, ritual baths. They ate together, they studied together. Quite possible that John was in a scene. So he would not have seen Jesus, and so revelation would have come to him by God. We're told in John chapter 1, verse 29, the next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God. Now he's in the presence, not just of his cousin. He's in the presence of his Lord, the one he came to proclaim, the one he came to make straight the paths of people to him. And as the prophets of old, this John who came out of the wilderness in his peculiar wardrobe spoke as one chosen by God, to prepare the way, not pointing to himself, but to the greater one, the greater one being Jesus. And there's a statement in John chapter 3, verse 30, that you do not want to miss. In John 3.30 is a statement made by John the Baptist himself. He said, he, speaking of Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. And when you look at the specific Greek of this statement. What John said was that Jesus must continue to increase. Jesus must continue to increase, but I must continue to choose to decrease. Think about that. How important that is for us. Jesus must continue to increase in our lives every day, but we must continually choose to decrease because of the battle between the flesh and the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. Every day we must choose to decrease that Christ may be exalted in us at all times. Amen? So comes the baptism of Jesus in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. And straightway, there's the word straightway, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens open and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. 
And this, therefore, was a, this, this was a baptism in which men made public confession of sin. I mean, the baptism of John, that's what I'm referring to. The baptism of John was, was a baptism in which men made public confession of sin, but Jesus did no sin. Jesus did no sin. Jesus did not sin. Jesus was no sinner. And neither was deceit found in his mouth. So why this baptism? Why this baptism? Why did Jesus get baptized? He didn't need to be baptized. His baptism, folks, was for the sinful, not for the sinless. His baptism was for the wicked, not for the holy. What Jesus did in going into the waters of baptism in the Jordan was God in the flesh coming to identify with you and me who are sinners. Identifying with us, though not identifying with sin, identifying with us. And in his entering into the water, being completely immersed in the water, signified what he came to do. He came to die for the sins of men. In coming up out of the water, it signifies that he did not stay in this state of death, but rose again from the dead. Three days later, that's what he would do. And the voice of God, his Father from heaven, said this, You, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved son. In whom I'm pleased. For Jesus fulfilled obedience of his Father at all times. He showed us what obedience truly is. When we get baptized now as believers in Jesus Christ, totally different reason. What we're doing is identifying as well. Now we identify with Jesus' death in the water. We are to be dead to ourselves. We're to be dead to Christ in the sense of our old man. We come up out of the water in newness of life. Why? Because we are identifying with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And confessing that the Lord has blessed us by taking our sins and burying them. Those sins stay. We arise in newness of life. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That is why this baptism of Jesus. Jesus made confession of our sin by entirely identifying himself with us, making our very sin his own. Now Matthew records it this way. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 17, he says that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Esaias, or Isaiah, the prophet, saying, himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Now, we can look at those words and consider that he's speaking of something that has to do more with infirmities of the body or sicknesses of the body. But if you look at the context of the things that Isaiah has said, even from the very beginning, the sickness that we have is sin. The sickness that we deal with and the infirmities that come from it is all based upon sin. 
in our lives. And how do we know this? We know this because of what Matthew was quoting. He was quoting from Isaiah chapter 53. He was quoting from the passage in verses 4 through 6 where it says, Surely he, speaking of the Messiah of Israel, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Griefs being the infirmities of sin. All the griefs that we bear because we have sinned before God. And he has carried our sorrows. Our sorrows being the sicknesses of our sins. And yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. Notice, transgressions is sin. He was bruised for our iniquities. Notice, iniquities. What are iniquities? Lawlessness. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes. The stripes that Jesus endured for us. The beatings before the cross. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes. We are healed. Healed from what? Healed from our sin. From our sicknesses. Our sorrows, our griefs because of sin. Now there are those who <clears throat> would say that uh, we are also healed from uh, sicknesses, real sicknesses as well, because real sicknesses come from the fact that we live in a fallen world. And uh, I dare would never say that uh, that Jesus doesn't heal, because He is the healer. He heals us according to His wills and uh, to His will and his, and his purposes. But the context, you could take it all the way back to the first chapter of Isaiah. The context has to do with sin. It has to do with him healing us from that. Then he says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The iniquity of us all. His baptism anticipated Calvary. Marking our Lord's entrance upon his work as Messiah. The Spirit's descent upon Jesus furnished his with all he needed, or furnished uh, him, I should say, with, with all that he needed from the Father to complete his mission. The dove, on the day that Jesus was baptized, the dove suggests the gentleness and the tenderness, never breaking the bruised reed, or quenching the smoking flax, as it were. Being the friend of publican and sinners, or publicans and sinners. This was also prophesied of Jesus. In Isaiah 42, verse 3, A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. A bruised reed shall he not break, he will not break those who are broken by sin. Those who suffer those griefs and sorrows because of sin. He doesn't come to, to break them. He comes to heal them. He doesn't come to quench the smoking flax. He doesn't come to... to Turn out the fire of those who would love to stand in the presence of God and serve God their lives. All the more the Lord wants to light the fire in us. The fire of the Holy Spirit, as he did at Pentecost. But his gentleness is revealed in Isaiah 40, verse 11. This prophecy of Jesus, he shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. This was one of the verses 
that we turned into a song and sang many times in the early days of the Jesus movement. Just to remind us how precious Jesus' love is for us, his sheep. Have you ever considered what pleases God? You know, Jesus pleased the Father by stooping to bear human sin. But what can we do to please him? I think sometimes we try to find ways, you know, to please God. Well, consider, if you will, Psalm 69, verses 30 to 32, where it says, I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or bullock that have horns and hooves. In other words, better than any sacrifice we can offer to him. The sacrifice of praise pleases God. The sacrifice of magnifying him with thanksgiving pleases God. God's people need to praise him all the time. Verse 32 says, the humble shall see this and be glad and your heart shall live that seek God. Your heart shall live. Seek the Lord while you may be found. But Paul in Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, but without faith it is impossible to please him. So we need to trust the Lord. We need to trust him. We need to believe in him and trust in him. We need to put the full weight of our trust upon Jesus. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Jesus pleased the Father by what he did for us. We please the Lord by thanking him for what he did for us. And then comes the burden of temptation, lastly now in verses 12 and 13 of Mark chapter 1. And immediately, there's that word, immediately the Spirit driveth them into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beasts and the angels ministered unto him. We should know that the redemption of mankind was to be costly. It meant a bitter cross and everything that led up to it. The temptations as recorded by the other gospel writers were Satan's attempt to make Jesus take shortcuts to the throne. From the, from the divine perspective, the Father tests the Son's faith and obedience, but we are assured of this very thing. That Jesus was not only able, but he was faithful to do all things in obedience to his Father. For he himself had already seen the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. Throughout all of Jesus' life, and I mean all of Jesus' life, he knew why he came. There wasn't some discovery before his, the age of 12, like a light bulb going on, or a candle being lit in those days. It wasn't that. Jesus always knew. And even by the time he was 12, preaching to the teachers in the temple, He always knew. In Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 18, Paul says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, put upon himself flesh, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject unto bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Singular, the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, 
that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted, which means he is able to aid and to help them that are tempted. And thank God for that. Tempted every day. But if you jump down to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, and we'll close with this. Hebrews 4, 14 says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. In other words, to hold fast means to hold strong, to hold sure, and never to let go. And keep holding on. Our profession of faith. Our faith in Jesus Christ. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Which means that he has been touched by the feeling of our infirmities. But was in all points tempted like as we are. And yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. To come boldly means that we come confidently. We come confidently in the very fact that God has sent His only begotten Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever, whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We cannot have life without Jesus. We cannot really have breath without Jesus. And we cannot have a future without Jesus. What future is there going to be for people who live only for today? How many people today, because of everything that has been going on, and, the, and you don't get these numbers, by the way. We're not getting the numbers of the many who have, given, who have just taken their own lives because they can't deal with what is being done in our country and in our, you know, overall in the, in, in, in the world. When is all of this insanity going to end? Everything has gone up in numbers. Domestic violence, child abuse, suicide, time and time and time and time again. But it's not being recorded, it's not being announced, it is not being stated. Why? Because it's not part of the narrative. Because we're in an election season. How sad that is. But we as believers in Jesus Christ can come boldly unto the throne of God's grace. To obtain mercy. How do we obtain mercy? Who's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God? Jesus himself, the right arm of God. The right hand of God. who loved us and loves us still with an everlasting love and will love us until the end of this life and well into the, into the next, which never ends because it's eternal. That's why eternity is so important for us. Well, I don't know about this eternity stuff. Well, you doubt? You don't believe? Then here's the world. We sit here with the very same heart of Peter who said, having not seen. And by the way, Peter saw him. Peter was with him, but speaking of us here today, whom having not seen, you love. That's faith. That's trust. That's not only trust in Jesus, that's trust 
in the Jesus of eternity, the Jesus who has no beginning, who truly has no end, because he was in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It's time now to believe in eternity. It's time now to believe in Jesus. Because straightway, He's coming. Straightway, he could be here at any moment. Straightway, we'll be home and rejoicing forever in the presence of our God. May I say that Jesus Christ's victory promises our victory in Christ, by Christ and through Christ. That's the gospel of Jesus.